everybody, and welcome to the A episode of Mastication Nation, the podcast that might have bitten off a little bit more than it can chew. This is hard. This is harder than I thought it was going to be, going through the alphabet for countries, because A, you're representing a country's cuisine, which is very close to people's heart. That's not your own, so it's delicate by implication. Uh, and also, it's so broad, and especially with the country that we're starting off in. But I think this, this this might be quite good fun, or we may offend millions of people. <laughs> Let's find out. Let's find out. There's only one way to figure this out and uh, know that we're coming with the best of intentions. Uh, I think a lot of the places we go to in the future will also be... Um, even this, even the country that we're going to be talking about today, a lot of it is own self-reflection uh, with some research thrown in there. So this is not your X. It is my interpretation of X with some historical background thrown in there. Yeah. And I think that I can uh, absolve myself of any huge amount of responsibility here because I've never been to this country. Uh, I have a great... I lived there for a while. Let's see. You know, there you go. I mean, you're going to be our, our on-the-ground person, but I've never been... We're, it's Australia. We're going to do... We're going to start with Australia. Uh, I have a great deal of affection for Australia. I've never been... I was supposed to go in March of last year. I had... I was booked and going to go to Sydney and give a speech, and um, then lockdown happened, and I, I, I... Gosh knows when I'm going to get back there, but I, I do look forward to it. But I'm glad we can do this. I'm glad we can explore this, and I think we're going to have a lot to talk about, but we cannot eschew, well, we can't eschew a couple of things. We can't talk about the reception we had for the last episode, which was the first in, what did we say, 15 months? Yeah, about that. And you guys were so sweet and kind and generous and with your welcoming messages on, on the various social media platforms, so so thank you very much. It's nice to be back and, and nice to know that we weren't entirely forgotten about. Yeah, it definitely feels like, you know, as we've always joked that we thought it was just us talking to each other and then people would pop in here and there. But people came out of the woodwork being like, awesome, you're back. That's something to listen to. I think I think probably during lockdown, um, everybody has gone through every single piece of media that they've ever, ever <laughs> been interested in. So, like, new content needs to be created at a lightning pace. So, I guess we are here to try and fill that empty void on your walk or run or whatever else else you're doing walking your kid to sleep which is when i listen to podcasts exactly i mean if you're not uh if you're in lockdown like anything like we are then you're not commuting or anything like that um so (laughs) it's uh yeah i listen to podcasts when i'm running uh sometimes and uh folding laundry or, or or whatever but yeah, it was nice. Um, James Haddon, thank you. He said, uh, just listen, welcome back. A lovely way to spend an hour. Uh, and uh, Chris Ratcliffe, who is such a great guy, whiskey. He was on our whiskey episode and just keeps keeps dropping knowledge. He actually sent me a bottle of whiskey, uh, me and Paul separately, uh, these wonderful bottles of whiskey uh, over lockdown that were um, done in port and rum casks. Oh, they were so, so good. I never actually properly thanked him, so Chris, thank you. Uh, Elliot J. Stocks, who who did the um, the hard work on the attaché book of laying it out and making it making my spreadsheet of nonsense into something beautiful, uh, he said he enjoyed listening to it and rather liked our reflections on the importance and value of alcohol, especially in <laughs> lockdown. But so many of you... Um, Got in touch, so thank you guys for for doing that. And uh, you know, this go round is going to be a lot more. We're going to lean on you guys a lot more for your input and thoughts and and ideas and inspiration and and intel. Frankly, so keep it coming. <laughs> Will's nodded. He's not. You can't hear a nod on a podcast, but I'm going to do the yes, the yes. visually impaired interpretation. Will is nodding into the camera. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, sorry, this is a complete tangent, but I was just watching a video the other day which was talking about uh, first-person games and third-person games. So first-person video games, you've got like, you know, your Call of Duty where you're seeing it through the protagonist's eye. Third-party games is where there's a fixed, uh, generally fixed uh, camera no, normally behind the shoulder of uh, the player. And the video goes in to talk about what would second-person video games look like and it's just, and, it, and so grammatically first person is i did this i did that and third person is he did this she did that 
Second question is, you did that. So it's basically, you'd be sitting there, someone telling you what happened to you. Right. Like, as you go down, like, so, like, Wolfenstein would be like, a Nazi jumped out at you and shot you. It's like, a, <laughs> I don't it's know like what, one of those old school text adventures, right? That's exactly the example this video uses. It's like, you know, you know, you go down a pathway and this happens to you. And uh, so Alex was just doing a little second person podcasting for us. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's much better than my slightly insensitive reference to the people who can't see in the world uh <laughs> moving on uh so guys yeah thank you thank you so much we're gonna we're gonna listen to you as we re- refine this and you know if there's something you wish you'd known about a country that we hadn't covered then let us know so we can make sure we go go back and fix it and also include it in future episodes uh i don't know what it's like for you where you are in colorado but here in the, the midst of rural england it's pissing it down. It's supposed to mm-hmm. snow all day tomorrow. It's not supposed to get above zero degrees centigrade all week. Quite unusual for us. Yeah, I was watching the Fulham game just now, and it's raining sideways. So, you know, typical typical English winter weather, except for the snow part. But no, for us, it's uh, uh, we had a couple of really nice days, and then it got really, really gray again. I think we got some snow on our way. Um, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in the last podcast, but next week not the week that we're about to hit the week after that is my birthday and we're going up to uh grand lake uh colorado which is for somebody who's only ever lived on uh major bodies of water being no smaller than a great lake um it's weird to be in a landlocked state with Mm. no real bodies of water but uh grand lake is the largest uh in the state and it's really up into the rocky mountains uh, and I've been checking the weather forecast uh, up there pretty pretty um, religiously. Um, and so I'll have to do some quick checking. But the Fahrenheit for what it is right now, I'll have to ch- convert that into Celsius for our metric people. Uh, but the weather right now or for the next week is... Oh, actually, I can do a funny thing on the app and change it to Celsius. There you go. It's minus 6 right there, Celsius, right now. Uh, with a with a low of minus eighteen oh, coming up, so you're going there on purpose. Yes, yes. Um, well, we rented a very nice cabin, so we're gonna stay inside and write the great American novel. I don't know what people do in cabins in the in the woods, so I don't, you know, I don't whatever it is. Know. Yeah, that yeah, exactly. It's like write the great American novel or commit heinous crimes against. You. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. So, in with that in mind, and uh, with our respective uh, horrendous climates, what are you uh, drinking to take the edge off? I am drinking. I was trying to find a Australian beer to drink, mm. but that's we're going to really get into that. Hard. We will get into that. So I did the next best thing and just went from for something I enjoy, which is a Samuel Smith's Nut Brown from, oh, from England. Yeah, I've had that. Jeez, I had that on my 25th birthday, and uh, that was one of the worst hangovers I've ever had in my life. That's the only reason why I can remember it. I remember For Alex's stuff. birthday, we were we were in Tracy, California, in the middle of... No offense, Tracy, California, in the middle of fucking nowhere, um, in California. And we decided to turn your house into an English pub, even though it was... 97,000 degrees outside. Yeah. So this is pre-streaming and everything. You had torrented a, a cricket match and put it on the thing and, and uh, got some good Indian food and, and made some pims and, and only stocked British alcohol. And yes, there was a lot of that. Um, I was like, I think I was like 19 at the time. when I'm seven years younger than you. It's whatever that makes sense. 18, I guess. But yes, I was there. And I remember your horrific hangover the next day. Oh, yeah, I was broken. I was a broken man. Uh, <laughs> how is it? It, is, it? I remember it has a distinct smell, that stuff. Well, it's, it's like, a, it's like a, um, an amber slash just a brown ale, like a Scottish brown ale. And I'm sure you know this, and I'm sure a lot of our own listeners know this, but like in England, there's the whole thing with pubs having to be basically underwritten by breweries. And mm. so... Uh, most most brewery most pubs have a certain the same you know beers no matter where they go and to save the the pubs back in the day that's why you could walk into any pub in the world in England sorry and it would feel exactly the same and the small ones were dying off. Sam Smith's was a brewery that decided said screw it we're just gonna make our own pub. So there was a Sam Smith's pub 
in central London that I used to go to all the time. And I like their their nut brown and their alpine lager. Those are the two I always go for when I can find them. But I really enjoy it. It's got that sort of dark, mm. not quite nuky brown color, more of like a dark rusty color. And I enjoy it a lot. It looks like a urine sample of a very unwell person. Yeah, yeah. It tastes uh, very malty, very caramel. Malt, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the smell that comes off of it. Yes. Um, How about yourself? Are you are you still not on the on the hog or the pony or the wagon, whatever they say? All of those things. I have uh, many of those animals in and around my house. Yes, I'm not doing any of those things. Um, I'm still recovering from that abuse of that uh, non-alcoholic red wine. So abusive, I, f- I feel like I need a safe word. I still haven't heard. No one has responded to that and said, "Oh, red, you know, de-alcoholized wine sucks because of this." I haven't heard any more about that. But as I have said ad nauseum, I do love non-alcoholic beer, and Brewdog do excellent work, and they came to my rescue in the last episode, and they have started selling on their website. And this is weird. I actually clicked on an Instagram ad. That's never happened before. Because they were selling in dry January, and they continue to, these 28-can sampler packs of the four non-alcoholic beers they do. So they've got Nanny State, Lost AF, which is just a pure lager, another one that I can't remember, and then this one, which is Elvis AF. They have a regular beer, an alcoholic beer called Elvis Juice which is an, uh, a grapefruit IPA. I had it last year, and it was fine. I'm not a huge citrus beer fan, but the reason I didn't really like it is because it had an almost, like, powdery... Do you know what I mean? Like, you almost felt it on your teeth when you drank right. it. Right, okay. It's kind of hard to describe. But this, I'm going to crack it open now uh, and pour it into my beautiful Glen Affric. Uh, we should really be recording these videos. It's way more fun. Uh, my beautiful Glen Affric, uh glass. I'm sure there's a very specific word for this. But yeah, it's nice. It's... it's. Um... Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's a good sound. Talking of urine samples. It's, it's very fruity. It's very grapefruity. I would imagine it's even better in the summer. But I don't, I don't hate it. And I really like all four of the beers that they've done are, are super good. And it makes me happy that there's so many non-alcoholic decent beers available so yeah it's good i'm 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 enjoying this so he uh let's talk about uh, the best thing i mean i don't know imagine that either of us have eaten anything that we didn't cook ourselves but uh since we last recorded it's been two weeks on the nose what's the best thing that you've eaten so i did eat out yesterday we had a burger uh well i had a chicken sandwich and my wife had a burger just because i was not in the mood to cook but uh now the best thing i ate given the fact that the weather is is uh cold i wanted something that could really stick to your ribs and i texted you and said here's everything i have in the house oh yeah i gotta get back to you properly and you and you you basically had some pork chops i had some vegetables i had like you know all the condiments of the world uh and you suggested that i should do the the macanese uh fried pork chop sandwich um I was trying to stay away from fried food, and also there was just some extra stuff I didn't do there. But I do do fried pork chops in the, in the past. Um, so what I ended up doing with this was a smothered pork chop. So uh, pan sear the pork chop, then uh, set it aside. Then I took uh, vegetables. I'm, I'm staying away from onions right now. Apparently, like there's you know some stomach things related to, to onions really? they don't agree with a lot of people so i'm just testing that out uh so broke down some mushrooms uh some ba- baby bellas threw them in the pan let them go down in the and everything the pork was cooked in then throw in some um flour basically making a roux um then adding a boatload of chicken stock uh, to make a, a gravy and then just like settling it down, adding, I added mustard, pepper, salt, uh, red wine vinegar, and then to let that settle. Uh, then threw the pork back in to finish, tender up. Then the last thing you do is I threw in like, you know, you throw in like 17 handfuls of spinach and you're left with like half a cup. Yeah, so yeah. adding the spinach, spinach in there and then finishing with some parsley over some mashed potatoes. And that was like real six year rib stuff. And I, and something that like, 
uh, sauces is something I wanted to spend more time getting mm. comfortable with in 2021. And just, you know, I think the big thing people are always freaked out about is like lumpy sauces and gravies. And it turned out really well. And, you know, the recipe I followed did call for onions. And I think that would have given the level of depthness. But I, uh, I augmented with some really good mustard instead. Ah, uh, you know what? That's a great idea. Probably exactly. a better idea, actually. Better for you for what what I what ails me. So, uh, how about yourself? What have you been eating? Uh, well, it's I'm gonna do two. I'm gonna be cheeky and do two really quick ones here. Um, my, I perfected my toad in the hole recipe, which yes. the, the 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 irony of this is I don't really like toad in the hole, but my kids. What is it love that it. you don't like about it? Is is it the sausage? The the batter or the combination thereof. I think it's the combination because I love I love Yorkshire puddings. Absolutely love Yorkshire puddings, but I don't want to eat one the size of a small car. Yeah, I don't know. There's just something I it's it's just not something I Jones for. My kids love it. Cracked it. That was really satisfying. I'll post the picture on the. We just realized the other day that we don't actually have an Instagram account, so I'll probably do it on the attaché one. But um, there you go. <laughs> I was I told you and Greg Barnes this thing that I because I've been trying really hard all year to eat super well cleanly and I roasted some Brussels sprouts in balsamic vinegar olive oil and sea salt and then in the same oven I made a little pouch and I put two salmon fillets uh, with some lemon juice and uh, just a tiny bit of olive oil baked them for like I don't know 20 minutes or whatever bowl full of, of the Brussels sprouts uh, then the salmon on top and then I put um, some kimchi on top of it. And it was so easy and so flipping delicious for like a, you know, two-minute prep weeknight meal for yourself. And uh, it was very, very satisfying. And so now I want to tinker with that a little bit. But the other thing for my for my one screw-it meal every week, I've been making breakfast sandwiches. I'm the mm-hmm. only person that seems to appreciate them. My kids don't 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 seem to think they're the religious experience that I have come to uh, come to refer to them as. But I just because you can get English muffins here in any store now, they're not nearly as good. They're not nearly as porous, if you know what I mean. Like when you cut it in half, it should be full of yeah. pores for all of the you know. I don't know why. Maybe there's not enough yeast in there or whatever. Um, and then I I have these like silicone rings that you put in a frying pan so you can have a nice McMuffin-esque egg. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I oven bake bacon a la Bourdain so it's not uh, too too crispy. You can get uh, the American cheese slice, you know, the individual craft singles at freaking Waitrose, te- Tesco, everybody. Throw that on the egg while it's in the frying pan, scoop it all in together, and it's just, it's just the most satisfying thing to have on a Saturday morning. So... Those two things are the things that I haven't stopped thinking about. I have a theory about breakfast and to why your kids may not be into it, but you are. And why, as adults, the concept of like having breakfast outside of breakfast ideas is tantamount to some sort of illicit activity, but everyone loves, uh, you know, breakfast for dinner kind of thing. I think it's because when you're a kid, you're parents sort of encourage you to have breakfast and you have time to do it and, you know, whatever the weekends and cereals are awesome for kids and as you get older and you get into the workforce it's trying to like grab something full of you know energy and just get on the bus or the subway and and get there get to work so you grab your cliff bar or your you know whatever it may be your shake and hit, hit the road and i so i think that like there are so many things that are unique to breakfast that you wouldn't eat el- 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 else you know, at any other time of the day, it's just weird to like maybe eat a, a English muffin with egg and stuff like that. So as an adult, when you get to do it, it's great, and you're new, for, not new, but it's like it's different for you. And the kids are like, "Why is Dad getting jazzed about breakfast we eat this every day?" <laughs> yeah, I know it's true because I never eat <laughs> silly, breakfast. silly rabbit tricks are for kids. No, exactly. They like I make breakfast tacos for them a lot and for myself, but um, and they like this. They're just not as like, look, I made a McMuffin as, as I am about it. But yeah, those are the things that I, <laughs> that I dig. So A for Australia. I think this was um, – Austria was a was a strong contender. I could talk ad nauseum about Apfelstrudel. Uh, when we filmed our Vienna episode, I was – I'd been up all night with food poisoning or something. And I was like, I just want some strudel, Greg, before I die. <laughs> 
take me to a Viennese cafe and just push it into my mouth if you have to. But I think Australia was was the natural choice simply because you'd spend so much time there. Yeah, I've never been to to Austria and uh <clears throat> I was kind of wanting to do if we had to do Austria, I was going to do the the Lloyd Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> the, the the dumb and dumber opening scene. Austria. Gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing on a trip on the Bobby, which we'll get into in a second. But no, I, I, I've never been to Austria. I've never really eaten any of their food. I've had some of their uh, their booze, but like that's about it. And so given the fact of where our audience is, the language barrier, the fact that I did spend a significant amount of time there, it made the most sense. And like the where we grew up in Hong Kong, the expat community was overwhelmingly Australian, New Zealand, and British. Uh, with Irishes and Americans and Canadians, Canadians thrown in, can, thrown in there, so, yeah, exactly. So that like you know there was a lot of like our closest friends growing up were Australians, and so that just a lot made a lot of sense, and it really plays into what we'll get into in a bit as far as where does Australia fit in the global culinary matrix? Uh, yeah, it was founded by a country literally so far away that if you keep going in one direction or the other, you start coming back on yourself, um, you know, and it's not in any way connected. Like there's a, I'll get, like there's a one, I'll, I'll jump ahead. There's a wonderful book, if you've never read it, called Notes from Down Under or Notes from a Sunburnt Country, depending on where you live in the world, uh, by Bill Bryson about him traveling through Australia in the 90s. And there's so many great, you know, he goes into the history of why it was settled and who it was settled by and what's changed. And there's always this concept up until about the, like the 50s that they, a lot of people consider themselves British and not Australian. And there was a premier of Australia back in the 1800s who said he was British to the bootstraps, even though he was born and died in Australia. Um, and so that's just been really sort of, we're starting on interesting ground, I think is a fair way to put this, yeah. um, even though it is the most alien of countries within the entire world. People talk about, you know, everything in Australia is bigger and tries to kill you. Like, what's the point of a spider that has enough venom to bring down an elephant, but it is only eating rodent? Yeah, like, uh, yeah exactly. crazy. Yeah, and, and Hong Kong was my first exposure to Australian culture at every level. As you say, we were, like, parachuted into this expat enclave in the New Territories, and the vast majority of the kids that were our age uh, were Australian and they would be like talking at you and be like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, and, and, and but the great thing was in a very, very, very short period of time, you're introduced to new words and new foods mm-hmm. and new shows and new, new, like, uh, senses of humor, Ibis. music, yeah, yeah, yeah. A tea, like, uh, but the amount of things like that I've I learned from my Australian friends in such a quick period of time. Some that have remained with me ever since, and a lot of them are food based. Uh, that was my my biggest uh, exposure to to Australian food culture. And then the, like you jump twenty something years ahead, and uh, researching the attaché book, I got a lot more information, and we'll we'll come back to that, but. What I think we both discovered, or, or I think knew already, but was really highlighted as we as we got in touch with people and 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 put out the sort of feelers, was that there is so much stereotype, not just about Australia, mm-hmm. which is made for some great Simpsons episodes um, and blockbuster films like Crocodile Dundee and Crocodile Dundee Two, Lost in New York. <laughs> Wait, that's Home Alone too. Um, but, but particularly regarding food. Yeah. I think that's a great place to start is sort of the assumptions and the stereotypes that most of the international world, um, have of, of Australia. And I think in my research and I'll go through them and everybody knows them, that there are so many of them that can all be tied back to advertising campaigns and it's advertised. Like you're not going to advertise Australian products, uh, or, Australia to Australians like that's just a bit redundant so the concept of getting people on the other side of the world to be interested in what's going on in this you know lonely outpost of terra australis incognitus which was the original latin term meaning big land unknown which makes sense because no one knew it was there yeah. um you're in a scenario where you need to 
play into the language and the culture of the place you're advertising to. So we'll go with the big one. Throw another shrimp on the bobby. That came from an Australian uh, marketing campaign here in the U.S. And the big anachronism is that Australians don't eat shrimp. It is, there are two different, I mean, they might a little bit, but like there there are two different genuses, shrimp and prawns, shrimp being more prevalent in the U.S., prawns being more prevalent in Southeast Asia and Australia. And it became good old Paul Hogan doing ads in America saying, come to Australia and put another shrimp on the bobby in the 80s. And then that being picked up in the movies and culture. And it just like doesn't make any sense. So when you think you're being funny and playing into like some sort of, oh, I know your culture, like drop bears, like you're not going to get the same reaction that you think you're going to get because no one has ever heard about this. This also play. I mean, look, they're a big barbecue culture. They're a big, you know, seafood culture. You, they were just translating it to to Americanisms. Uh, same with Foster's, which oh, yeah. everybody, everybody reached out to us and said, oh, when you think of Australia, you think of Foster's. Yet, even even this, the, the Simpsons episode, uh, you know... Homer asked for a beer, and the guy puts a keg of Fosters on his on his you know table. Like it, it it's so ingrained again through a marketing campaign. It is uh, the second most popular lager in the whole of the UK. I didn't know that, but the UK is the uh, is the the market they're going after. It doesn't exist in Australia. You can't go into a bar and ask for a Foster's. No, and it was it was created by two Americans, American Irish people in um, in Melbourne in the eight yeah in like the eighteen hundreds yeah. and like then it just sort of just sort of went off into the ether as far as Australia, but like you know became very 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 popular uh, in England and to a lesser extent in the in the U.S. I feel like they've tried to break the U.S. a couple of times, but you know it'd be like everyone thinks it's like their version of Budweiser because the hard um alliance to uh one the the sort of overhyped culture but also the 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 colors it's the australian flag and it's got the southern cross on it like so you assume that like this is the most australian thing in the world but it's really not and it came down again to a marketing campaign you know foster's australian for beer Mm -hmm. like this doesn't exist anywhere carlton and triple X are the actual four X, sorry, are actually the most common beers in Australia. Yeah, it's funny because I, I was just thinking about this today. Uh, again, having never been to Australia, I don't know what it's like on the ground. But you know, when you when you go over to your to your buddy's house and you're ten years old, and you know the the dads were almost invariably pilots because uh, we our dad worked for an airline, and I remember them. There was always these sort of it was. Like the, the, the Australian version of Coors and the Bud Light, you know, like you were either one or you were the other. Uh, and mm-hmm. it was it was Castlemaine 4X. One was one of them. And the other one was Tui's. Yep. That's it. Yep. I remember that, that Tui's was a, was, a, was a big deal. I don't know why that sticks out in my head. So, okay. We'll come back to the last um, stereotype in a second. I think we're on a, on a good run here with the beer. So when I first, you know... Went to Australia as an adult. I used to go there for holiday all the time, which is weird because I guess you were just too much older. But like we were on the Gold Coast all the time. We were in Noosa. We were in Sydney, Melbourne, you know, because we'd fly down with friends. Um, But going there for my gap year, um, as every middle upper middle class kid does in England before going to boarding school. I am a cliche. I know. Um, (laughs) I remember this being what I'm like 15 16 16 years ago it was before the beer revolution had started across the world and australia beer was very much the vb so the victoria bitters Uh, carlton yeah yeah, carlton draft carlton dry twoies twoies dry you know all that uh castle main all all that fun stuff and australia is so similar to canada in so many ways because canada also had not had its revolution of beer yet um and dry beer is something that was very common in both Australia and Canada, but wasn't common in England, and I did not like it. When I went back in my mid-20s and lived in Melbourne, the the um, beer and the craft beer movement had really exploded, and um, Little Creatures, for those who live in Melbourne, I know it's like a household name now. They opened up a place in San Francisco like two years ago, and these are names that like you could find anywhere, and it's just like, 
Tui's beer sponsors sports in Australia, and that had still has a very, very firm alliance to it. But then these smaller beer companies have popped up, and now they're in a scenario where you don't have to love the state of origin or AFL to enjoy beer. It's like the disconnect that's happened in the U.S. where if you like your NASCAR and your trucks, you drink Bud, and if you like your handlebar mustaches and reading, you know, leather-bound books, you drink your skunky IPAs. Yeah. It's like there's been that disconnect in Australia as well. Yeah, it's. Uh, it, it, I think that's really interesting, and I, I'm again looking forward to, to to getting at it. And the good thing is, is because the middle class gap year train goes in both directions. So London is always teeming with Australians as well, which is which is great because you have all these Australian bars with Australian beers. And so, you know, you can get some of these slightly more obscure ones that are not obviously Foster's mm-hmm. as well, which is great. But do we need to talk about Outback Steakhouse? I feel like we need to talk about Outback yes. Steakhouse. Yes. So, oh God. Outback Steakhouse, I don't know who their marketing team is, but they need to get punched in the back of the head. They're... they're their tagline is everything is fresh in the outback. And that's literally the opposite of anything that's ever been remotely true. Like out, the outback is where things go to die. Like it's <laughs> this place that haven't seen water in a thousand years. Yeah. Like nothing is fresh in the outback. And I was doing some research and the guys who invented it with some American restaurateur guys who just like the who just like the concept of like, you know, the American interpretation of Australia and Look, it, it it never comes close to anything remotely Australian. They do shrimp on the bottom. What did you? The, I love the Wikipedia entry, which is because uh, there's like a thing about the menu, and it's like bloomin' onion, which is uh, like what fifteen hundred calories, breaded yeah. deep fried onion, and then other. And under other, it says while quote outback Australian and quote cuisine is not especially well defined. Ordinary Australian foods that are well-defined are not represented in Outback Steakhouse's menu. Because of this, the chain can be considered to use the Australian moniker for marketing purposes only as a theme restaurant without any real attempt to reflect Australian cuisine despite its visual merchandising attempts to do otherwise. And I was like, nailed it. That's that's it. That's That's exactly what Outback Steakhouse is. So these people... These people need to be held accountable for their crimes. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I haven't been to one in 20-something years, um, and it, I don't think it was great. But I don't, I you know, I, if it's if it's a decent theme, you know, chain steakhouse, whatever. But don't go there thinking you're getting Australian food because you're not. Yes. Well, actually, that, that kind of nicely segues us into we reached out to the, the community at large and both like heavily Australians, but also internationally, you know, they uh, we asked them for what their what they felt was uniquely Australian or not even necessarily uniquely Australian. But what, yeah, what represents, represents Australia? Australia? What is what is the best? What I wanted people to do, and I think this is what I want going forward is, you know, those of you that are from these countries, what is your what is the ambassador you know, if you could say, mm-hmm. come to Australia or any of the other countries, we're going to feature any one thing, and that's the experience, what is it? Not necessarily the one that everybody thinks of, but everyone, you should just yes. try this, you know? The one that we're most proud of. And things of. that don't travel. Yeah, things that don't travel outside of the country Yeah, as well. yeah, exactly. We got some interesting, uh, we got a lot of the um, the stereotypes from non-Australia. The amount of foster stuff and shrimp on the barbie was predictable but it was really interesting to hear and this this is this kind of correlates with the research that that I, when i did and reached reached out to a lot of friends and restaurateurs and f- food journalists and food bloggers when i was writing the attache book uh so i was quite pleased to see that that, that validation but i the number one thing that came back was meat pie yeah which the is, beloved australian think, meat like, pie yeah which i think it plays into the fact that in that that Australia was an English colony for a very long time, and it was um, populated by. Um, there is this concept that the entire country was founded by convicts, which is not the case. Uh, there was a very small amount of convicts originally, and they were called the Stain because they refused to mention it in their history books a lot of the time. Uh, <laughs> may that that may have changed. That may have changed. Just the books I was reading. T- 15 years ago, referred to it as the stain. Anyway, it was a lot of working class people that had come to, you know, um, 
basically terraform a new country uh, to the world that they were used to, you know, rolling hills of England, New South Wales, exactly the kind of, you know, idyllic English, oh, sorry, UK, Great Britain ideals that they were putting forth. So a lot of people from the north of England, a lot of people from the southwest of England, you know, Cornish pasties, that kind of stuff. So you're in a scenario where that kind of pie culture was already really established. Um, and yeah, everybody that I talk to, you know, before for an AFL game or whatever it may be, you know, they go for they go for a pie or a sausage roll, and it's very very English. Um, I think yeah. the most famous of the of the pie though, probably probably is the pie floater. Would you would you potentially yeah, agree pie, with that? Yeah, I did. It was interesting because so the meat pie. I think you know what, what's great about the meat pie is it's just it's it's beautiful in its simplicity. <laughs> The meat pie, I love, or the uh, the pie floater because it's like, it's so perfectly Australian, which is taking something simple and adding a little bit of sort of audacity to it. And a pie floater, apparently it's from Adelaide. I didn't know this. Um, it's <laughs> it's a meat pie, previously mentioned, the aforementioned meat pie, placed upside down in a bowl of pea soup. Uh, and then often covered in ketchup, which just makes it. And I think uh, there's something rather wonderful about that. And this is like, this is like very serious. Like you know, Bourdain is a fan. Um, Angus Young from ACDC, his all-time favorite food. This is like, yeah, we. This isn't a joke. This is serious food business here. And something that I would do want to mention is like, if we were to do this episode for the U.S. and we tried to like quantify you know the food that represents the u.s the the warring factions would be insane because of the regionality um from what i understand while meat pies meat pies are uh everywhere to alex's point you know the pie floor is is originally in adelaide adelaide but um the boomerang coast i.e adelaide up through um to uh canberra um that whole area is uh, where a lot of these stereotypes, or not even stereotypes, where a lot of these like bigger name foods come out of. So if they're not big in, you know, uh, your area, I apologize. But <laughs> yeah, that one I actually did did eat a lot there. Um, I did enjoy it. It is stick to your ribs kind of, kind of stuff, um, and I think quite nicely explains sort of the original English isms of england of, of australia yeah. but um but think about that think about it for a second like think think about a meat like a pie floater you know you've got a, the awesomeness of a meat pie which they're great and then you've got the flaky crust you've got meat with some gravy inside sat in pea soup so that lovely fresh mint pea soup and then a tang of ketchup it's perfect <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah but if you would let australia sort of develop its own food culture where it's a thousand degrees outside and everything wants to kill you. Do you think that they would have independently come up with something as stodgy in English? No. Like, that's the thing. I think that it was very, you know, it's it's what's great about so many um, food cultures where, you know, uh, imperialism is involved for better or worse. You go, you something comes mm-hmm. into the country, like, yeah, these are fine, but you know what would make them way better, you know, <laughs> is if we put it in pieces exactly. or we put it on a spit and put it in a taco, you know, that that type of thing. Yes, no, uh, and so the thing that I saw that was that got ranked every single time number one, and I think when I jokingly said pie floater being the most Australian thing, Joel Joel Candia like clapped back and said, "Nope, it's not." And he said, and the research I've done since kind of backs this up is chicken parmesan. That I don't understand. So when I was living there, chicken schnitzels or schnitzels in general, just everywhere you get a schnitzel sandwich wherever you went so a cutlet of chicken pounded and then fry a deep uh, breaded and then fried and put into a sandwich is great but the concept of like the fact that the chicken parm is just everywhere again talks to the fact that there was a very large mediterranean movement to australia after the second world war what i think is interesting is that unlike so the pie floater that may be super regional, this goes everywhere. Yeah. And I think it's because ch- like chicken is everywhere. You can fry everything and everyone loves a sandwich. Yeah. Um, so like that was the number one. And these are all things like you can get a pie in England. You can get chicken parmesan in most places. 
but there are ones that we should probably get into that are absolutely uniquely Australian. And my favorite that I remember from growing up in Hong Kong and going to kids' birthday parties was fairy bread. Yeah. Did you ever have this? I did. And I had forgotten about it until I had started reading this document that you the the show notes. <laughs> Describe what fairy bread is, and I I hope that every Australian so, listening to this is smiling from ear to ear right now with nostalgia. So there's two things like I want to talk about for being a kid growing up with Australians. One fairy bread, uh, which is super white like bread, bread, airy normal bread, Wonder Bread style. Slathered in margarine. butter or, or or margarine, if you're a certain kind of like uh, fairway vista kind of person, mm-hmm. which is the uh, town, the area that we grew up in, and then sprinkled with hundreds of thousands, hundreds and thousands on top. Yeah, of like it. The, the ice cream sprinkles. Yeah, the, which were great when you were a kid, but I'm like, does this really count as food? Now that would make like, me gag. Like, but as a kid, you're like, this is literally the greatest thing. You're gonna make me eat a sandwich full of candy. Yeah. The other thing was um, growing up was I think like in England, Nesquik was sort of, you know, the mm-hmm. the, the chocolate milk, twelve year old yeah, powder tw- stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Twelve year exactly, twelve year old equivalent of powdered milk and chocolate milk. But for Australians, I was always served Milo. Yeah. And like I I think that was a very Australian thing it's was definitely like APAC. school. Right, yeah, and you just get given like a you know a mil- little did I know I'd become lactose intolerant, but like a large glass of milk with uh, a heaping spoonful of of Milo on top of it, which is chocolate powder, but it's their own version of it. So I thought that was that was like sort of hitting me in the feels as far as like something that was coming up in these these uh, these tallies of what Australians considered uniquely theirs. Yeah, but it is um, theirs. I mean, it was invented in Australia. It was part of the. 1934 Sydney Royal uh, Easter show. That is... Wait, wait, wait. wait. Milo or fairy bread? Milo. Okay, I was about to say. Fairy Fairy bread bread was not, I don't think, (laughs) uh, has any royal lineage whatsoever, but it's still one of those things that I'm sure that every Australian cannot imagine their childhood without. But I think this nicely goes into the big bad boy of the bread world in Australia, which is Vegemite, which... What's funny is that in England, if you say, do you want a weird brown spread on your, on your, on your toast in the morning, they'll give you two options. They'll give you bovril, which is less, yeah, less beef so extract. Right, yeah, yeah uh, beef extract. Or they'll give you marmite, which is a yeast extract. Marmite doesn't travel outside. Like if I say to a, uh, an American, what is that funky stuff that's made from yeast that you put on – that other countries put on bread? They'll invariably say Vegemite yeah. because I don't know if it's the the culture or everything we talked about previously about like you know stereotypes, but Vegemite and Marmite are and don't flame me are basically exactly the same. Yeah, thing, Vegemite the consistency is more or, or, or more paste, slightly more pasty. You know, with Marmite you could pour it if if I mean you need to wait a while, but it would eventually pour. But yeah, they're yeast based spreads. They're basically. You know, bottles of umami. Yeah, that's a great point. You can use them in great, like spoonfuls of them in gravy. The big thing that I always, like my sister-in-law uh, went to the University of Wollongong for a semester and like she would bring this stuff back. And I remember she, well, just Americans in general, they would always say this is disgusting. And I'd find out that they were like spreading it like you would spread peanut butter. Yeah. Like that level of And that of almost cover. like burns your sinuses. It's so potent. Yeah, it's almost like wasabi. You want to like pull it through like... I don't want to make a gross uh, metaphor, so I won't. But, like, you know, it, you want to make it look like it's just visible. Yeah. You're just seeing streaks of black and brown. And that's the level of it's, zing it's good that you stuff. want. It's good stuff. I, I, I'm one of those rare people because Marmite is a very debas- divisive topic here in the UK. There's this all the, the whole, like, you either love it or you hate it. I'm kind of indifferent to it. I don't hate it, but I don't crave it. Bovril, however... I love that stuff, which is basically a beef, Me too. beef version. But yeah, I think, you know, Vegemite is, I think, one of the things that everybody universally, which is accurate, unlike Foster's Nowback Steakhouse. Vegemite is ubiquitous in Australia and representative of Australia and Australian. The other one, the the one that I was introduced to in Hong Kong and have craved fortnightly ever since is the wonderful and 
irrepressible Tim Tam. Yes, which somehow has made its way over to the U.S. You can go into a Target, you can go into a Walmart and buy them anywhere. This is a necessary and wonderful thing. And that was the great thing, again, about growing up in Hong Kong is because the grocery stores uh, had to cater to so many different cultures. You had, like, you know, Nabisco graham crackers next to, you know, McVitie's Digestives next to Arnott's... um, Tim Tams. And so I love this. <laughs> Tim Tams are biscuit. I think we should probably cover that. And like penguins. In well, the, so in here's England the not. hilarious thing about that. Yes, they are very much like penguins. So there was the in the 50s, the head of food technology at Arnott's, who are a huge biscuit company in Australia. He went around the world and was looking for inspiration for new products. And when he was in England, he found penguins. And he said he came back to Australia and decided he wanted to, quote unquote, make a better one. (laughs) Which he did. Which he absolutely did. And they are, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the chocolate. Maybe it's the biscuit. But they are the most wonderful Moorish. So to explain to to what they are to people who never uh, have seen them, they're two... Uh, layered of biscuits with a chocolate um, crema, it's not crema, chocolate um, filling in the middle and then doused in a hard chocolate. So it's like, a, imagine like an Oreo as far as the layers, but then dipped in chocolate, but a much better chocolate cookie. Uh, and that's what you got. And they have seasonal ones where they change out the flavors, much like Oreo does as well. Yeah. But uh, absolutely. Did, you, did you ever do, did you ever do a Tim Tam Slam? I, I don't think I did do a Tim Tam Slam. My college roommates, Greg and Nick, who would spend uh, most of their waking hours making uh, making uh, cups of tea and then ranking the episodes of Home and Away and, and Neighbors every day. In fact, they had a running chart in the in the living room at college, at, at college where they would decide, you know, was it uh, was it Ramsey Street or wherever the hell Home and Away takes place? Something um, big. And a Tim Tam Slam, yeah, Tim Tam Slam is where you bite off alternate corners of your tim tam dunk it into your hot hot tea and then the tea seeps up in some sort of capillary action (laughs) and melts melts the middle and then you create a chocolate straw where you can suck through your tea through the tim tam and your tea is infused with uh tim tam with wonderfulness well, that's just exactly do that as soon as we finish recording (laughs) goddamn tim tams uh, well, oh, I love, funny. I love, I mean, I didn't know about this, but uh, apparently the um, Woolworths, the Australian Woolworths version of, of the Tim Tam uh, is called, and I love this, this is the most Australian name I've ever heard, Chalky Slams. <laughs> I love that so much. Anyway, they're That's amazing. Funny. But I feel like we haven't touched on a very important um, and significant topic, which is the massive multi-generational immigrant community in Australia that has completely changed the face of Australian food and food culture in a relatively mm-hmm. short period of time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, the funny thing about Australia is that we always associate it with being an English culinary, col- colony and having the culinary impact thereof um and that you know post pre-war it was all sort of northern europe uh ireland scotland wales the greater united kingdom during the war obviously there was some different kinds of immigration there was a big gold rush in the early 1900s um and there was some very let's just say uh repugnant immigration acts that were put forth in the early 1900s uh that limited who could come to australia uh, that was repealed in the 60s as sort of colloquially known as the white Australia policy. Uh, and in the 70s and 80s, they really sort of embraced... The irony being that this is... It was not a... Yes, exactly. The freaking Aborigines have something... Yeah, the Aborigines have something to say yeah. about this, right? So, yeah. yeah. So what what the Premier and the, the, the Prime Minister at the time in the 70s and 80s were was basically saying was that, you know, their closest real trading partners are, are in, um, in Asia. And also they were losing a lot of people um, to, to emigration. 
Uh, and so they needed, you know, to, to, to bolster the workforce as much as, as sort of just being good humanitarians for their region. And with everything that was going on in places like Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, East Timor, our best friends in, in Hong Kong, their mother was from East Timor and she was a refugee into Darwin. Uh, Lebanese, there's a huge Lebanese population in Australia. Uh, these sort of Greek. Yeah, Greek, exactly. A lot of Mediterranean movement as well. That, that came right around the first uh, end of the Second World War. Um, you, they, you know, sort of came to the major metropolitan city areas. And, you know, much like we talked about in the L.A. episode of Attaché with the Koreans, they were there a very short period of time compared to the Chinese who came in and built the railroads on the West Coast. They've been there for several generations. The Koreans had only been in the U.S. for two tops, maybe three. Similar to the, the folks I just mentioned, you know, especially like the Indians. Well, India is a little different because of the English influence, but your Indonesians, your Timorese, Malaysian, Lebanese, Eastern Europeans, etc., and that's why not only lamb makes sense because of what was being grown there, but like like kebabs are fantastic. Mediterranean food is, is fantastic. Um, you've got a lot of fantastic uh, Vietnamese food in places like uh, Sydney and Melbourne. And this is sort of like I, I, I put this note in here because it really summarizes the pragmatism of the Australian culture in general. They used to be in the FIFA qualifying world of Oceania, where they would play people like New Caledonia and Fiji and, you know, Vanuatu, and then never get into the World Cup. They realized that for them to ever make it into the World Cup, they would need to change regions. And they realized where they were focusing a lot of their trade and a lot of their uh, just general, um, you know, GDP was coming from or interactions were coming from Asia. So when they applied to FIFA in 2006 to be... In the following year, in the Australia, in the Asian qualifying zone, it wasn't like a major. Well, what are we doing? That's not like Mexico joining Europe. This made sense, and an interesting little tidbit is that every year they the white pages releases their um, you know last name, most common last name in certain cities, and Victoria, especially Melbourne specifically, Nguyen, which is uh, Vietnamese slash you know Cambodian last name, uh, and Singh were firmly in the top 10. In fact, I think uh, Nguyen for Melbourne specifically was in the top three. And that's why you can get some of the best Southeast Asian food I've ever had in my life in sort of the Victoria, Adelaide area, which, you know, I think really summarizes what we're talking about. You know, Joel, his family in Perth being, you know, of the subcontinent, you know, being... Malaysia. Yeah, exactly. Malaysia, but doing Indian food. That kind of really summarizes everything that there is to do with, you know, I'm not saying Australia is in any way perfect, but, you know, they've got some really interesting, you know, politicians right now. But, like, the fact is they did a big import and they were able to sort of blend into the wonderful uh, soup that is Australian food culture. Yeah, and I, I Melbourne seems to be the the sort of melting pot of, of food in Australia. And, um, I'm sorry, Sydney Ciders, culture. It always has been. Like, all the best bands come out of Australia, all the best restaurants were coming out of, sorry, out of Melbourne. And the reason that um, Canberra is where it is is because no one could argue, no one could settle a fight between Sydney and Melbourne on where the city should be. So they dumped it in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And, <laughs> which is hilarious. But the fact is, like, Melbourne got the, the Olympics before Sydney did. They got the uh, official national uh, Philharmonic before Sydney did. And while Sydney, to me, is LA, Melbourne is more a, a mix of San Francisco and New York. Yeah. That's the way I see yeah. it. Don't fight me. I know that I got friends in Sydney. <laughs> Well, it was interesting because I was reading about this, uh, about Melbourne, and it's, um, you know, it is the food capital of Australia. I don't think anybody would fight you on that part. But this, you know, it's got a huge Chinatown. It's got, there's the, it's the largest, it's got the largest Greek population outside of Greece, uh, Italian, Middle Eastern, Indonesian. I mean, you know, things like, what I love about, and it reminds me a little bit of Toronto in this way, mm -hmm. is that. There's a lot of influence, but then there's a lot of interpretation and generational tinkering. So you you have dim sim, not dim sum, which is um, inspired by dim sum, except they're actually it's much much larger, um, uh, like 
dumplings, things, yeah. you know, dumplings or, 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 you know, things like that. So, you know, I, I love that. And I think it's, uh, you know, that's just, that's a 20th century thing. Mm-hmm. And so much of this is because Australia, like America, is a relatively new country. It's like so, chop suey in California. Young, young like country. Chop suey. Yeah, chop suey, egg for young, all, all stuff like that. Crab rangoon, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> yeah, all, all that. And I think that that's wonderful. And I'm, I'm still, I mean, I'm 41 years old and I've still never been to Australia despite spending so much time in, at least on that, in the Pacific region. So I, I I do yearn to get out there and, and try all these wonderful things. It feels like a place I need to go for like a month. Yes, yeah. And just do it, it properly. Like the U.S., it's super regional, and like there are going to be people screaming at me, being like, "What are you? What about like roast lamb or burramundi?" And like there are huge, yeah, areas of food that we Ind- didn't indigenous didn't, food exactly. And that actually, that that brings me on to my last sort of two points, which is. Um, when I was living there, I wanted to do stuff that was uh, American staples or British staples with Australian ingredients. So, like, has anyone ever done? I actually was eating a lot of ostrich there and a lot of kangaroo. Has anyone ever done kangaroo barbecue? Not like barbecue on the grill. Like I'm talking about like deep South, you know, Carolina or Texas style barbecue with something like kangaroo or. My wife being from Boston, I ate a lot of um, lobster rolls. There's this thing called the Morton's Bay Bug, which is the most hideous thing in the world, but is like a prehistoric-looking squished lobster. And, you know, has anyone ever thought to do that kind of stuff? And to your earlier point, that's kind of like jamming old and, and new with what you can only find there. The last thing I do want to mention is, much like in South Africa, where I li- I spent more of my time than, than Alex did, but Alex, you know, talked about it with Corbis and in the uh, Attaché episode is some of the weird nomenclature that Australians get. So the South Africans get that Australians and the rest of the world wouldn't, which is now, 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 and just now. And now, they know exactly what that now, yeah. what that means. It's like, you know, it's denominations of time. So if you go into any pub in Australia and ask for a beer, generally there'll be a default they'll give you. But there is about three different, very standardized sizes they'll they'll ask you for. Generally, if you ask for a beer, in my experience, they'll give you a schooner, which is smaller than a pint. Probably what you would see in like if you were at a friend's house, they poured you a beer into a normal glass. But the three things are a pint, a schooner. Or a pot, or in Western Australia, a midi is what they call them, and they're decreasing in sizes. And I never have experienced that. Anywhere so, which else is the way. biggest? So, a pint is your classic twenty ounce fluid, fluid ounce imperial pint. A schooner is fifteen fluid ounces, and a pot is ten ounces, just to wet your whistle. What's hilarious is that every single state gets this right, or territory gets this right, except for Southern Australia who calls a pint an imperial pint, a schooner a pint, and a, and a pot a schooner. Just to be really pissing everybody off there. And then you've got Northern Territories, but they don't even count as a real state because they chose to not be. They don't even send a real representative to, Cong- to, to Parliament. I'm not going to get into that. Anyway, they call a pot a handle just to be different. But I, that took me a long time to realize that if I wanted a specific size, you needed to know the nomenclature. So just remember pint... Schooner That's a very important point. Pot. Yeah, that that always that always stuck with me. But look, guys, we know we there's a lot. I think the way that we want to structure these is here's everything that we found. Fill in our blanks. Fill in our gaps. Yes. And so the next episode, you know, please let us know areas that you want to let us spend a little bit more time on or things that we forgot or areas of things that you want us to do a little bit more on. Uh, we will do more in the future where we might have somebody join us for the actual episode. Uh, we're just still finding our feet with the cadence of these and how we get into them. Also trying to find somebody in Australia whose time, time zones work with somebody in Denver and somewhere in, uh, in England just doesn't, does not work. I'm yeah, on it's gonna be hard, mountain it? time. Nobody knows what mountain time is. So there you go. <laughs> it's not like Miller time. It's a real place. <laughs> Miller time's a real place too. Yeah. <laughs> Well, good. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, every time that Joel Candia posts a picture of just a random restaurant or a random dish he's eating in Perth, it always looks really good, which makes me think that Australia takes its food seriously. For a country of 25 million people, they seem to know what they're doing. So I, I can't wait to get out there. 
Uh, I don't think we've settled on what we're doing for B yet. So if you have ideas, uh, let us know. Uh, if you want to submit your your country, uh, either of birth or adoption, uh, let us know and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see what we can do. But uh, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to this. Um, well, until next time. Cheers, mate. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs>